Chapter Three of the Confessions of a Poacher, edited by John Watson, Fellow of the Linnean Society. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Graduating in Woodcraft. We hear the cry of their voices high, falling dreamily through the sky, but their forms we cannot see. Just as the sportsman loves rough shooting, so the poacher invariably chooses wild ground for his depredations. There is hardly a sea parish in the country which has not its sure shooter, its poacher and its fowler. Fortunately for my graduation in woodcraft, I fell in with one of the latter at the very time I most needed his instructions. As the snig, as I was generally called, was so passionately fond of live things, old Kittywake was quite prepared to be companionable. Although nearly threescore years and ten divided our lives, there was something in common between us. Love of being abroad beneath the moon and stars, of wild wintry skies, of the weird cries that came from out the darkness, love of everything, indeed, that pertained to the night side of nature. What terrible tales of the sands and marshes the old man would tell as we sat in his turf-covered cottage, listening to the lashing storm and driving water without. Occasionally, we heard sounds of the demon huntsman and his wish-hounds as they crossed the wintry skies. If Kittywake knew, he would never admit that these were the wild swans coming from the north, which chose the darkest nights for their migration. When my old tutor saw that I was already skilled in the use of gins and springes, and sometimes brought in a snipe or woodcock, his old eyes glistened as he looked upon the marsh birds. It was on one such occasion, pleased at my success, that he offered what he had never offered to mortal, to teach me the whole art of fowling. I remember the old man as he lay on his heather bench when he made this magnanimous offer. In appearance, he was a splendid type of a northern yeoman, his face fringed with silvery hair and cut in the finest features. One eye was bright and clear even at his great age, though the other was roomy and almost blotted out. He rarely undressed at nights, his outward garb seemed more a production of nature than of art, and was changed when, like the outer cuticle of the marsh vipers, it sloughed off. It was only in winter that the old man lived his lonely life on the mosses and marshes, for during the summer he turned from fowler to fisher, or assisted in the game preserves. The haunts and habits of the marsh and shore birds he knew by heart, and his great success in taking them lay in the fact that he was a close and accurate observer. He would watch the fowl, then set his nets and nooses by the light of his acquired knowledge. 
These things he had always known, but it was in summer when he was assisting at pheasant rearing that he got to know all about game in fur and feather. He noted that the handsome cock pheasants always crowed before they flew up to roost, that in the evening the partridges called as they came together in the grasslands, and he watched the ways of the hares as they skipped in the moonlight. These things we were wont to discuss when wild weather prevented our leaving the hut, and all our plans were tested by experiment before they were put into practice. It was upon these occasions, too, that the garrulous old man would tell of his early life. That was the time for fowl, but now the plough had invaded the seabird's haunt. He would tell of immense flocks of widgeon, of banks of brent geese and clouds of dunlin. Bitterns used to boom and breed in the bog, and once, though only once, a great bustard was shot. In his young days, Kittywake had worked a decoy, as had his father and grandfather before him, and when any stray fowler or shore-shooter told of the effect of a single shot of their big punt-guns, he would cap their stories by going back to the days of decoying. Although decoying had almost gone out, this was the only subject that the old man was reticent upon, and he surrounded the craft with all the mystery he was able to conjure up. The sight of his once famous decoy was now drained, and in summer ruddy corn waved above it. Besides myself, Kittywake's sole companion on the mosses was an old shaggy Galloway, and it was almost as eccentric and knowing as its master. So great was the number of gulls and terns that bred on the mosses, that for two months during the breeding season, the old horse was fed upon their eggs. Morning and evening, a basketful was collected, and so long as these lasted, Dobbin's coat continued sleek and soft. In August and September, we would capture immense numbers of flappers, plump wild ducks, but, as yet, unable to fly. These were either caught in the pools or chased into nets which we set to intercept them. As I now took more than my share of the work, and made all the gins, springes, and nooses which we used, a rough kind of partnership sprung up between us. The young ducks brought us good prices, and there was another source of income which paid well, but was not of long duration. There is a short period in each year when even the matured wild ducks are quite unable to fly. The male of the common wild duck is called the mallard, and soon after his brown duck begins to sit, the drake moults the whole of its flight feathers. So sudden and simultaneous is this process that for six weeks in summer the usually handsome drake is quite incapable of flight, and it is probably at this period of its ground existence 
that the assumption of the duck's plumage is such an aid to protection. Quite the handsomest of the wildfowl on the marsh were a colony of sheldrakes, which occupied a number of disused rabbit burrows on a raised plateau overlooking the bay. The ducks were bright chestnut, white and purple, and in May laid from nine to a dozen creamy eggs. As these birds brought high prices for stocking ornamental waters, we used to collect the eggs and hatch them out under hens in the turf cottage. This was a quite successful experiment up to a certain point, but the young fowl, immediately they were hatched, seemed to be able to smell the salt water, and would cover miles to gain the creek. With all our combined watchfulness, the downy ducklings sometimes succeeded in reaching their loved briny element, and once in the sea were never seen again. The pretty sea swallows used to breed on the marsh and the curious ruffs and reeves. These indulged in the strangest flights at breeding time, and it was then that we used to capture the greatest numbers. We took them alive in nets and then fattened them on soaked wheat. The birds were sent all the way to London and brought good prices. By being kept closely confined and frequently fed, in a fortnight they became so plump as to resemble balls of fat, and then brought as much as a florin apiece. If care were not taken to kill the birds just when they attained to their greatest degree of fatness, they fell rapidly in condition and were nearly worthless. To kill them, we were wont to pinch off the head, and when all the blood had exuded, the flesh remained white and delicate. Greater delicacies even than ruffs and reeves were godwits, which were fatted in like manner for the table. Experiments in fattening were upon one occasion successfully tried with a brood of greylag geese, which we discovered on the marshes. As this is the species from which the domestic stock is descended, we found little difficulty in herding, though we were always careful to house them at night, and pinion them as the time of the autumnal migration came round. We well knew that the skeins of wild geese, which at this time nightly cross the sky, calling as they fly, would have soon robbed us of our little flock. In winter, snipe were always numerous on the mosses, and were among the first birds to be affected by severe weather. If on elevated ground, when the frost set in, they immediately betake themselves to the lowlands, and at these times we used to take them in pantles made of twisted horsehair. In preparing these, we trampled a strip of oozy ground until, in the darkness, it had the appearance of a narrow plash of water. The snipe were taken as they came to feed, on ground presumably containing food of which they were fond. As well as woodcock and snipe, we took larks by thousands. The pantles for these 
we set somewhat differently than those intended for the minor game birds. A main line, sometimes as much as a hundred yards in length, was set along the marsh, and to this at short intervals were attached a great number of loops of horsehair in which the birds were strangled. During the migratory season, or in winter when larks are flocked, sometimes a hundred bunches of a dozen each would be taken in a single day. During the rigour of winter, great flocks of migratory ducks and geese came to the bay, and prominent among them were immense flocks of scoters. Often from behind an ooze bank did we watch parties of these playing and chasing each other over the crests of the waves, seeming indifferent to the roughest seas. The coming of the scoter brought flush times, and in hard weather our takes were tremendous. Another of the wild ducks which visited us was the pochard or dunbird. We mostly called it poker and redhead, owing to the bright chestnut of its neck and head. It is somewhat heavily made, swims low in the water, and from its legs being placed far behind for diving, it is very awkward on land. In winter, the pochard was abundant on the coast, but as it was one of the shyest of fowl, it was always difficult to approach. If alarmed, it paddles rapidly away, turning its head, and always keeping an eye to the rear. On account of its wariness, it is oftener netted than shot. The shore shooters hardly ever get a chance at it. We used to take it in the creeks on the marsh, and, as the matter is difficult to explain, I will let the following quotation tell how it was done. The water was surrounded with huge nets, fastened with poles laid flat on the ground when ready for action, each net being, perhaps, sixty feet long and twenty feet deep. When all was ready, the potchards were frightened off the water. Like all diving ducks, they were obliged to fly low for some distance, and also to head the wind before rising. Just as the mass of birds reached the side of the pool, one of the immense nets, previously regulated by weights and springs, rose upright as it was freed from its fastenings by the fowler from a distance with a long rope. If this were done at the right moment, the ducks were met full in the face by a wall of net and thrown helpless into a deep ditch dug at its foot for their reception. In addition to our nets and snares, we had a primitive fowling piece, though we only used it when other methods failed. It was an ancient flintlock, with tremendously long barrels. Sometimes it went off, oftener it did not. I well remember with what desperation I, upon one occasion, clung to this murderous weapon whilst it meditated, so to speak. It is true that it brought down quite a wisp of dunlins, 
but then there were almost a cloud of them to fire at these and golden plover were mainly the game for the flintlock and with them we were peculiarly successful if we had not been out all night we were invariably abroad at dawn when golden plover fly and feed in close bodies upon these occasions sometimes a dozen birds were bagged at a shot though after all the chief product of our days were obtained in the cymbal nets we invariably used a decoy and when the wild birds were brought down and came within the workings of the net it was rapidly pulled over and the game secured for the most part however only the smaller birds were taken in this way coots came round in their season and although they yielded a good harvest netting them was not very profitable for as their flesh was dark and fishy only the villagers and fisher folk would buy them a curious little bird the grebe or dabchick used to haunt the pools and ditches of the marsh and we not unfrequently caught them in the nets whilst drawing for salmon which ran up the creek to spawn they had curious feet lobed like chestnut leaves and hardly any wing this last was more like a flipper and upon one occasion when no less than three had caught in the meshes a dispute arose between us as to whether they were able to fly kittiwake and i argued that whilst they were resident and bred in the marshes yet their numbers were greatly augmented in autumn by other birds which came to spend the winter whilst i contended that they flew kittiwake said that their tiny wings could never support them and certainly neither of us had ever seen them on their journeyings two of the birds we took a mile from the water and then threw them into the air when they darted off straight and swift for the mosses which lay stretched at our feet a mile below End of chapter three